Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Welcome, everyone. This is Lisa Borders, and I have the privilege of speaking with my good friend, Olivia Wong. Morning, Olivia. Good morning, Lisa. It's so great to have you with us from the left coast. I'm on the east coast. We have this amazing technology that allows us to be close and intimately speaking, but we are physically so far apart. Isn't that amazing? It really is. I think I've spent more time with you during COVID than any other time. (laughs) But you know what? The pandemic, while it has been horrific to many people, they've been ill and some unfortunately have transitioned and passed away, it has really changed the way we interact with one another. We used to talk on mobile phones all the time, and FaceTime was so novel. And now we get to speak and see one another in a much broader context. We're learning so much about each other, just how we live and where and what. Exactly. It's been so fun seeing people in their home environments because I think it removes a level of distance when I get to see people with their partners or their children. I've had so many Zoom calls in the last few months where kids are running around in the background. You you just get to see the person for who they are. I know. I was talking with someone the other day and they said, it's going to be quiet. I've closed my door. And 15 minutes into the conversation, the dog came in and just started watching us. It was so adorable. So thank you for your time today. Listen, I want to talk a little bit about you and your life and things that you find interesting and enlightening. And if that's okay with you, could we start with Who is Olivia Wong? We know you specialize in prototype thinking and projects, but what is that and what took you to that place? Is it something you experienced as a little girl or through working or education? Help us understand who you are. I'd like to start with Olivia Wong is a spiritual being having a human experience and Olivia was the name I was given. My mom really enjoyed Greece and she wanted me to be Olivia Newton-John. She chose Olivia over Ashley. So I could have been Ashley or Olivia. Now my brother is dating a woman named Ashley. So I'm glad I'm not Ashley. Oh my goodness. How interesting. (laughs) And Olivia is a person who has a million different lives in one lifetime. She's a person who likes to reinvent herself every few years, try new things, surpass her own personal boundaries, and challenge cultural borders. And my story starts in San Francisco. That's where I was born. When I was very young, I knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur because I started creating things to sell. I think I just loved the concept of earning money. I really liked investing time into something and then seeing it pay back. 
and taking that money and reinvesting it. When I was 12 years old in fifth grade, I built a business because we were given a challenge to build a business around the Pushcart Wars, which is a book that we read. Wow. Have you read this book? I have not read this book. Tell (laughs) us more. Okay. It's post-depression and the book is centered on different push carts. You have the flower vendor and you have the brick vendor and you have the vendor who's peddling bread on the street. And the idea is to build your own push cart and then see who can make the most profitable business. And so I got this idea that I wanted to sell hot dogs. I I guess that's the most ingenious (laughs) product I could think of when I was in fifth grade. And we went to Smart and Final. My mom took me there and we bought dozens and dozens of hot dogs by the, the masses. And I still remember it was seven cents for a bun and then nine cents for a hot dog. And I marked it up and I sold these hot dogs every lunch. And in two days, I made about $200 for an hour's worth of work in fifth grade. My teacher said, if I knew that I could make $200 an hour, I would quit my job now and go sell hot dogs in Golden Gate Park. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So I loved it. I used to come up with inventions all the time. My mom can attest to this. I would draw sketchings of things that I thought the world would want. And then eventually I would show them to adults and they would say, they've already, these things have already been made. But that was who I was as, at a young age. And I also always wanted to help people. One of my earliest memories actually coming back home from college was trying to help someone who was homeless in my hometown of San Francisco. And I have to preface the story because I don't share it to try to signal virtue or any type of quality. That's really not the reason why I bring this up. But it's an important story for me because it was the story that taught me humility. I had this idea that if I just put together a bag, a duffel bag of all of the things I thought this person could use, socks and Tylenol and gift cards, money, water, books, all sorts of things. I put all of these items into a bag and I brought it to this person who I'd seen my entire life in my neighborhood. And he had always been living on the streets and I've known him since I was a small child. And I remember looking for him in San Francisco and I walked up to him and I offered him this bag and I didn't really have a lot of language. I just awkwardly shuffled this into his, in front of him. And he just said no, and he didn't want it. And he turned me down. And I remember my face being so hot because I didn't understand what was happening. And I didn't have the language to catch myself in that moment of being rejected. I wish I would have asked him a question. I wish I would have even started with something as simple as, hi, I'm Olivia. What's your name? I didn't even ask his name. I think I did afterwards, but the moment just went by so quickly And that moment was really important for me because I walked home and I just thought about all of the things that I did wrong. Why didn't this person want my help? Was it arrogant of me to even assume that they wanted my help? Why didn't I ask what they wanted before trying to create the solution for them? And that moment was the spark. In Japanese, I like to use the word kikake. It's the, the spark or the ignition for my love and passion for human-centered design. Because after that, I went back to college and I studied as much as I possibly could about human-centered design. How do we build solutions for people in a way that really acknowledges and cherishes and respects their humanity? 
because so often what we do in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley is we build things with ego. We build things for people because we think that's what they want. And then it's a rude awakening, like my example of when we show that person what we've built and it crumbles and breaks right in front of their eyes. So that to me, I think is my core story. And sometimes people will ask me and they'll say, yeah, what's your origin story? And I go back to that one as being the birth of who I was as a leader, as a problem solver, and as someone who really deeply cares about the homeless population. That's an incredible story. But Olivia, I listen to you. And as I'm thinking about moments of enlightenment in my own life, I realize it is often a moment where the outcome is not what we expect. And the experience is sometimes painful, often personal, sometimes even public. But those moments are the some of the greatest teaching moments or moments of enlightenment, this notion of human-centered design. And I know in corporate America, we have often talked about focus groups and understanding who your targets are. And that's all about solving a problem based on the person or the group you're trying to solve the problem for, not what you think, but what they think and what they need. And there are lots of people who are still doing it the wrong way. And you learned this lesson so very early in your life. And it has taken on so much meaning, it seems. If I look forward, pull you forward a few years after college and think about the passions that you are really focused on now, For example, homelessness, you saw that gentleman for many years, you tried to help him, it didn't work, but you had a learning. Tell us about the passion about helping homeless communities today. And was that informed by that experience when you were a little girl? It was. And then it was informed by another experience when I met this person named Kevin, and he is the founder of an organization called Miracle Messages, which is one of my favorite organizations in the world. And the reason why it's my favorite, one of my favorite organizations in the world is because they approach the issue of homelessness from a deep place of humanity and empathy. So their belief is that people on the streets are not problems to be solved, but they're people to be loved. And when we can see someone for being someone's mother or father or grandmother or grandfather or child, we can actually connect on a deep human level. And all of the stigma that is attached to being homeless, to being a veteran, to being disabled on the streets, to being part of the LGBTQ community, being disowned by your family, all of that just fades away. When you can see someone as being your family member or someone's beloved one, it changes everything. That is so profound. And thank you for sharing that. As I think about the judgment that we often throw out there against whatever the kids call it, throwing shade. <laughs> I would just say it is so painful when you think about we are judging our fellow human beings. We oftentimes, I think, are fearful of that person. It's not rationally based. It's psychological in some way. So the notion that you find this community just that part of our community. We are all inextricably linked. I know you feel that way. Can you talk about that as you are a spiritual person and you 
have often said to me, we are deeply connected. It's an invisible thread, but we are all connected. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Because it flows from this conversation about helping the homeless. Absolutely. One of my favorite concepts that Miracle Messages coined was that people are not homeless, not always. They're not homeless because they run out of money. It's because people run out of relationships. And when you run out of a relationship, you experience something called relational poverty. I myself am so privileged to have relational wealth. If I were to have a bad day, if I lost my job, if my partner broke up with me, if I was in an abusive relationship, I would have someone to go to, maybe a couch to surf on. Someone might deposit some money in my bank account. But there's people in this world that don't have that connection. And to have the dearth of human relationships, I think, is the most severe type of poverty. To me, I think it's even more severe than finance because you can always get money back. But what happens when every single person in your life has given up on you? That's something that I've never experienced before. And the reason why that stands out to me so deeply is because you're right, I am a spiritual person. And I think that in life, we are all given relationships and we're not even shown how we're connected. That's the thing. Some of the best teachers in my life I have never even met because on the surface, they're my enemies. And yet they're my deepest teachers. They're the people who challenge me because they trigger me. And I think that in life, we have so many teachers and friends all around us, and we're all connected by this invisible thread. And only in these moments of miracles does God reveal that we're actually part of the same story. But we cross paths in different ways. It's something that I can't even explain, but Oprah does it so well. There's a movie that she was in and she endorsed and it was about seven different lives and this idea of seven different circumstances all intersecting without knowledge because of divine fate is real to me. Actually, I had this experience once and Dijon was part of it, but I had this moment in this experience. It was a bit of an out of body experience, but I had this experience once where I was at this program And I had this revelation come to me and this idea just flooded into my body that I had seven minutes to live. I can't tell you why I just had this dawn on me, but it was this like, huh, this deep inner knowing that I had seven minutes more to live. And I was with your son, Dijon, at the time. So I looked over to Dijon and I looked at my phone. I said, Dijon, I have seven more minutes to live. That's just, that's my calling. I looked down on my phone and it was 6.53 seven minutes to 7 p.m. And he said, Olivia, what will you do with your final seven minutes? And I said, I guess I'm going to say goodbye to everyone I love, like the people that are most important to me. So I run around that room and it was a personal development conference. It wasn't really the end of my life, but there were a lot of good friends in the room and I identified seven people who really mattered to me. And I went around and I had a conversation with them, short, concise, but it was my last message, I thought. When I was walking around at seven to, to the very end, and I knew my dad was picking me up at seven o'clock outside, I saw one final person. And I told him what had happened to me. And it was a series of events that had led me to this, uh, oh, I guess, a new awareness. And I asked for his advice. And he said, you need to start meditating because you're about to start a new chapter of your life. And that person was Andrew Hewitt. And he runs a large organization called Game Changers 500. And he has been on an amazing journey helping other people around the world. 
So I didn't die. Obviously, I'm still here. <laughs> My dad picked me up at seven o'clock and I was like, I guess I'm not going to die. Like I have another <laughs> chapter in life. But that was it. And I realized that in our lives, we will walk by so many people who will inspire us and influence us. And it's not until the very last minute when we're looking back at our life in a 360 sort of view that we see how important these people are. And with that understanding here on earth, I really like to cherish relationships and I cherish relationships. I cherish the relationship that we have and I cherish the relationship that I have with my, my partner and my friends, but also with someone, for example, Dino is a friend of mine who sits outside of a grocery store called IGA. It's 50 meters downstairs from my building. And every single time I see him, I stop and I talk to him and we chat and we talk about the pigeons who are his friends. And we talk about his 20 year old daughter and son who lives somewhere in California, maybe in Santa Barbara. And we talk about everything and those are the relationships that I really believe are the gifts of, of life. They are the assets of wealth that we've been given and that we've inherited during this lifetime. You know what? That is amazing. And I could not agree with you more. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people don't often remember what you say, but they always remember how you make them feel. So the fact that you are so attuned to not only what you're saying, but how you're living your life and relationship equity versus relationship poverty. Uh, I think most times when people think of poverty, they typically think only in one dimension, the dimension of finance. They don't think about us as individuals and as being linked in some way. In fact, I think we tend to segregate and isolate ourselves when one of the greatest human needs, it's not only food and water, it's humanity, it's touch, it's being able to connect with other people. Thank you for sharing that. That is just amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about community because you have helped in the homeless community, but in general, you take your communities very seriously. Let's start with business though, because I have always, from the time I met you and I heard about this prototype thinking and how do you bring ideas to life in an accelerated and elevated fashion, that's your business, your professional community. So let's talk about that. Can you tell us and remind me what prototype thinking is all about? Sure. People who love prototype thinking, and I would identify as a prototype thinker, we are people who want to work in a more human way. We're tired of going to work and contributing 9, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes 60 to 80 hours a week, only to find that we're not really creating the impact that we want in society. Or We're people who want to do things smarter. We don't necessarily want to work longer. We think that we can live in a more balanced way at home with our lives and that we don't need to commit suicide to our careers or our personal lives just to be able to climb up the ladder or achieve some success. Everything to us is about delighting people. It's about creating something called a magic moment, which is a moment where we're genuinely creating visceral impact in someone's life in a way that can't be faked and it can't be manufactured. One of the examples that we use a lot in my teaching of what a magic moment is, we talk about the creation of Google Glass, which is one of the very first augmented reality headsets, and it was a pair of glasses 
And originally the Google X team had tested that creation in front of a room of surgeons. And there's this critical moment in surgery, and I'm not sure if you're aware, I wasn't aware of this, but when something happens, when something goes wrong in surgery, the surgeon has to look away from his or her patient and try to grab a digital display, find information, absorb that information into their eyes, into their brain, make sense of it, come back, find the exact same place they were once working, which might be only millimeters, and in that split second, resume work. And it's a high-risk situation. If the person isn't in control, if they're not paying attention, you could lose a life. And so when the X team originally tested Google Glass, with the surgeons had this huge gut reaction to the impact the creation could have. They said, whoa, you mean I don't have to look away from my patient to get vitals? I can just continue surgery and the information of how to conduct the surgery, the vitals, all the, the next steps will just be displayed onto the physical environment because that is something that had never been done before in surgery. And so in the world of prototype thinking, we are always looking for that magic moment, a moment of service, a moment of delight. And then what we believe is that a product or service is that magic moment. And our job is to get all of the distractions and the clutter away and create that a clear path to that experience. And so a wonderful product is actually a series of magic moments that are sewn together end to end in an elegant fashion to create this delightful, enchanting experience that is three points better than anything that exists in the market. And that's a concept that we came up with that we coined called the three-point offset, which really tells us that if you can build something that is three points better, it will naturally actually spread its own awareness and adoption. People will talk about it and you don't have to spend so much money marketing it or distributing it because it has the sort of that that X factor, which changes people's habit. And it's always about behavior change. How can we get someone to leave what they've been doing for the thing that we've built? So all of that is to say, people who believe in prototype thinking, believe there is a better way to solve human problems, a way that is joyous, abundant, regenerative, and it's not driven by ego. It's actually driven by empathy. Wow. And I want to just put you on the stage and have you talk about that all the time, because this is a radical concept from what I've seen in any sector. I've worked in all three as the three point offset. The first thing that came to mind is the three point shot in basketball. (laughs) It is more points. It is farther back on the court. It requires a different set of skills, greater accuracy, more velocity, but it actually enhances the team's position because you get three points for that shot as opposed to one. So your point about awareness and adoption of a product based on its ability to generate its own impact and in a joyous way, geez, oh, Pete, what a concept. And I know you are giving speeches all the time. Can you talk about how you make this information relevant and resonant. I completely understand why a surgeon would want to have greater continuity with their patient and with the surgical situation that's going on because they're literally in a life or death situation. They're holding someone's life in the palm of their hands. So for Jane and John Q. Citizen, like ourselves, how do you make it relevant and resonant so people recognize that this joyous moment of holistic impact is going to be effective for them? Sure. 
I think we all have challenges around sales. I have never met a single person who has said, I'm really crushing it in my sales quota, except maybe the one and two on the sales of a large enterprise. But historically, I've always heard that people have issues with sales. So that's a really interesting question for me because I had issues with sales too when I first started my consultancy. And I was having all these conversations And I just wasn't seeing the return. People were getting on the phone with me, but I couldn't convert them into a paying customer. And for the people that I did convert into a paying customer, I couldn't get them to be a repeat customer. So if we take a problem like that, where prototype thinking really helps is it it helps you understand the why. It helps you understand what is it about your message or the way you're delivering that sales call or the positioning, or maybe the sales cycle, what is it that we don't know? Let's go uncover all of the information that we don't know so that the answer is obvious. And so for my own sales challenge, I applied prototype thinking to that problem. And what I did is I had 120 different sales calls with chief innovation officers at mostly Fortune 500 companies. And I booked all of these calls with them. And Before that, I actually had role-played my sales conversation. So this was an interesting new conversation for me. I had never experienced having to pitch my company. And this is the very early days, right, of the consultancy. And so I didn't know exactly how to say enough without giving away too much, but speaking in a language they understood because we are very cross-industry. We work in technology to healthcare to cosmetics to aerospace and I can't give the same explanation of who we are to each person so over the course of about a hundred different sales calls I really refined the pitch and now if I have a conversation and it's the right customer I have about a 95% close rate because I prototyped that conversation I know exactly what is going to happen because not only did I share that conversation with someone, I sat down with them. I said, I want to know everything about what you thought. Where did you get excited? Where did you get interested? What words confused you? Where did you feel like you became disinterested? What would you like to do next? Share with me everything that's happening for you, your authentic stream of consciousness. And using that simulation style approach of testing, I was able to uncover all of this information that really was unknown to me. Tapping into that unknown about what your customer thinks about you and the service. That's pretty incredible. It is often hard for any of us to look inside, in effect, to ask the question that or questions that make us analyze our approach to the person. It goes back to the top of this conversation and the first interaction you had with the homeless gentleman in your community. You wished you had asked questions. Now here you are full circle as an adult leading prototype thinking and you're using prototype thinking to go in and really understand what is happening. That's pretty incredible. You talked about not only thinking and asking questions, but about also reinventing yourself, which obviously comes from asking questions and understanding what people are thinking. So I'm getting the thread. I understand. Recently, you were crowned Miss Asian Global for 2020. And I am proud of you and so excited for you. 
But I want to unpack that a little bit too, because here you are, this spiritual person who asks questions, who reflects on both her achievements and her adversities. You are real and you appreciate what's going on around you in your communities. So talk about Miss Asian Global. Why did you enter into that space and what made you want to pursue it? Goodness knows we're all just happy you won, girl. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. You're so sweet. And I am deeply grateful for your love and support the entire way. I can just feel like how much happiness you have for me and you're cheering for me. So thank you for that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a big question. Where do we start? <laughs> I'm a rebel. I always have been. I was the person that was called bossy when I was young and I don't even take it now as a critique. I'm, I'm fine with it because I really am quite bossy. <laughs> People call me <laughs> all the time. I'm like, yes, I know exactly what needs to be done. I will tell you what needs to be done. Otherwise, how will we get it done? For me, pageantry was something I really wanted to play with. I had a spiritual awakening in 2017 after I came back from a 10-day Vipassana retreat in Myanmar. And one of the things that really stood out to me was I felt like I was having a psychological coming out. How people in the LGBTQ community, they come out. It's like they step into a new founded truth of who they are. Absolutely. Well, I, yeah. I, 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 I don't identify, you know, as being queer, but similar to that, I had a psychological coming out, which allowed me to bend my own reality. I had this sort of fixed notion of who I was before. I am this person. I have this personality. I've been given this lifestyle. This is what I do for my career. It is all lined out. And I said, you know what? F this. Let me go try to be a musician. Why can't I try to become a singer? I tried all of these different things. I even took singing classes from Michael Bublé's singing coach. Oh my goodness. I did. <laughs> because I thought about the 10,000... Our rule, which you probably obviously know, which is if you commit 10,000 hours to anything, you can most likely master it because it's just the probability of compound investment over time and learning. That's right. So I, I tried a bunch of different things. And one thing that really stood out to me, which I had never really allowed myself to try, was actually makeup. I loved makeup. I loved beauty. I loved fashion. But I always thought that this wasn't a serious profession. How could you make a career mm. out of this? I'm Asian American. This is not a path for me. <laughs> I went to a liberal arts college for God's sakes. Like, this is not what my parents wanted, but I tried it. And around the time where I moved to Vancouver, I met someone who had changed the landscape and the paradigm of pageantry. She was one of the first people in Canada to talk about human trafficking 10 years ago. Wow. And she won Miss Canada and Miss World Canada. And I saw this changing landscape where we were looking at nice, pretty girl pageantry to bad ass activist pageantry. And I said, mm -hmm. I want to be part of that movement because I was very much inspired by people like AOC and just celebrities who are now taking their platforms for social change and social justice. So when the pageant came around for Miss Asian Global, I thought I have to try this because if I do win, I, I believe I will be the only person who will want to talk about hard-hitting issues. I do not shy away from hard-hitting issues. 
I love to have difficult conversations about politics and society. I think it's the only way to move us forward. And instead of hiding and trying to obfuscate from these conversations, I want to bring them to the forefront. Mm. So luckily, I was asked one of the questions I was hoping to be asked in the Q&A. So there's five criteria of the judging. And the last part of judging is a 40-second question. You have 40 seconds to deliver a coherent response on a touchy, controversial topic. And it can go wildly. It could also completely tank. And I was really hoping to be asked about Black Lives Matter or police brutality or white supremacy. Any of those three would have been fine with me. And I was asked about police brutality. And I think it was the divine answer because I was able to speak my truth, not shy away and not worry too much about what other people thought. And I think... I don't want to give myself too much credit, but even in the practice rounds, all of the delegates ourselves and the contestants behind the scenes, we were really nervous about answering a question like that because you really don't know who the judges are. Are they conservative? Are they liberal? Where do they stand? Do they have family members in the police force? And the majority of us were born on the West Coast, so we are extremely liberal with our views. Half of the team went to Berkeley. You get get the drill. I get the (laughs) drift. I love it. And even with that, I said no, because I am not here to answer a question to make other people comfortable. I'm here to be truthful. And the last thing that I will do is I will not collude with evil. If I am silent, if I do not stand up for what I truly believe in, I am colluding with evil and the oppressor. And that is not who I want to be in this lifetime and who I am. So I got up on my soapbox and I talked about white supremacy for 40 seconds. And I think I would have been disqualified if I was running for Miss USA or Miss America. It just, it wouldn't have been looked on favorably, but my pageant organization is one of the most progressive organizations in the world. We've been called the most innovative pageant by Wired Magazine. We've been covered in the press by Vogue and all of the publications, Harper's Bazaar, et cetera. And so I just knew if it was any time, it was going to be now. Come on, Olivia, we got to go. Get on that horse and say what you mean. Speak up, woman. That was what I was telling myself in here. I absolutely love that. The fact that you are willing to have difficult conversations. I've had those in my life and you're never sure exactly how things are going to land. But what I am always sure about is that if I don't say what's true to me, like you said, what was true to you and what made you feel as if you were adding your voice to the voices of those who are trying to correct something that's wrong, then it doesn't settle well with me. And that's the person that I'm most concerned about. So kudos to you, not only for getting it done coherently in 40 seconds, but for having the confidence, the courage, and the compassion to actually stand up not only for yourself, but for those who don't have voices or whose voices are not fully heard. But let me just say from a pageantry perspective, There are many folks who judge pageants in a very negative way. And I had never heard of your pageant until you entered and subsequently won. But what is even more exciting to me and inspiring for me is that how this pageant is using its platform and the recognition of how much good can be done through the pageant 
talk a little bit about your reign and what you will, how long is it? What do you do during that time period? And what do you expect that your legacy will be as Miss Asian Global 2020? Those are some of the most beautiful questions I could have been asked. Thank you. Absolutely. One of my judges blew me away. When I discovered who the judge was, I went online and I read her dissertation. She is a professor, but also she is in the office of the dean at Princeton. Her name is Dr. Fia Ofori Menza. And she wrote a dissertation about what pageantry means in relationship to race and gender and sort of this political social context of the generation. And this one line will always stand out for me. And she said, pageant winners are not just dolls. They're not just these empty figurines that people nominate. They reflect what is happening and changing in the cultural landscape of society at the time. This is an remarkable groundbreaking year. We have seen Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss America. They are all beautiful Black women. And this is groundbreaking if you look historically at who has been winning pageant titles. Even Miss Universe, Miss South Africa, it is incredible. And I think with that in mind, I wanted, I want, um, and I am making sure that my reign is of meaning. It's changing the culture, it's changing the conversation, and it also gives permission to other people who look like me to see themselves in pageantry. To be quite transparent and honest, I actually didn't see myself as being a pageant queen because I've never seen anyone who looked truly Asian on stage. There had been Asian winners, but they would always be half Eurasian, so more Caucasian Western features than Asian features. And when I saw other people who looked like me, I thought, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it too. So why don't I go for it? There was a woman who's Filipino. She won Miss Canada. We competed in the same pageant a year ago. I didn't place. She went on to win that pageant and then Miss Canada. And I saw her on her announcement day and I thought, that is what I am going to do. For me, it's about representation. It's about making sure that I'm always using my voice for meaning. I'm currently on a tour called the Empathy World Tour, where I go around 10 different themes that touch on empathy from disability rights to LGBTQ, refugees, immigrants, climate change, suicide prevention, mental health, homelessness, veterans, Black Lives Matter, women's rights. These are all of the topics that I care about most. So I host two IG Lives a month on each topic, featuring someone who has that direct firsthand experience. And then I'm also working on my campaign, obviously, for humanizing homelessness and a number of other things. I also, I think I just can't stop. I could come up with all these ideas and I'm going, but that really is the essence of what I'm here for. It's to teach empathy. It's to open minds and bridge understanding. We talked about initially one experience of enlightenment for this podcast I want to tell you that you have brought your A-plus game because there have been multiple experiences of enlightenment, clearly. And let me just say, you are educating me and educating all of us. The notion of pageantry through the lens or the context of social, political, and cultural lenses, that is mind-blowing in and of itself. And candidly, I'm not sure I realized that Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss Universe, I did know about Miss South Africa, but to understand along with yourself, Miss Asian Global, 
women of color, right? I did not put all those dots together and connect them. So the notion of this space, the pageant space, the beauty space, being a social barometer, if you will, of cultural change and where we can see calibrations of change in that space. Jeez, Pete, that's beyond reinventing yourself. That is once again, being not only enlightened, but impactful with the platform and with all that you are doing. Let me just step back and say from growing up in your neighborhood on the West Coast in the Bay Area to your professional life with prototype thinking and using that thinking to apply to your own life so that you can be more successful and understand all the way to present day with you having won this pageant and realizing it is a means to an end for good, I am just absolutely blown away. The enlightenment that you have experienced and that you're willing to share is something that none of us will ever forget. So let me thank you and offer you some final thoughts for how all of us should govern ourselves as we move forward, hopefully having new experiences and bringing new ways of thinking so that we become enlightened. Final thought? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I just listened to this. It was, I'm always referencing Oprah, but I just love her so much. We all have whispers in life. God, the universe, our creators, they whisper to us. And I think our job is to make that voice louder than the one that is in the back of our head the annoying roommate that we all have that doesn't pay rent to live in our, in our mind space. The right. And I think when you can have that deep inner voice, the one that guides you be louder and be the dominant voice, your world changes because you're no longer suffering. It's, it's a voice of reason. And it's also the voice of God. So just follow the voice of God, people, please listen to yourself, trust yourself and love yourself. And that is my final message. Olivia Wong, it's a new day. It's a beautiful day. And we are so grateful for your willingness to share. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take good care. Bye now. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, Subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.